Greetings, children, and welcome to my chamber. My name is Rotherick Gastblood, and I'm your host of Tales from the Dark Chamber. This week, we have a great show for you. Tales to make your skin crawl. Each week, my chambermate and I read a scary tale that we found on the internet, or perhaps left under some corpse. Either way, we think you're going to like it, and we're just dying for you to hear it. So sit right back, light a candle, and let's have a good evening. <laughs> hey, Rothrick. Yes? Hey, hey, Rothrick. Yes, Woody? Rothrick. Woody, get to it, man. What is it that you want to tell me? Hey, do you remember the story about the roses? Yes. Do you remember Stan? Yes. Do you remember the demon Bethim? Woody, is there something important you want to tell me? Do you remember... Woody, get to the point. Yeah, okay. So, guess what? Let me guess. You're trying to annoy me. No. Why would you ask me that? No reason, you ninny. Fine, if you don't want to know. Want to guess again? You found some roses and figured it would be a great funeral wreath for when I kill you. Now, what is it, Woody? Well, you don't have to get snippy about it. Tonight, we embark on the second exciting chapter in the tales of What the Hell Pricked Me series with Why the Hell Was Craig Pricked? Part 1. Why the Hell Was Craig Pricked? Part 1. By Sunfred. Questions swamped my mind as I read the text over and over again. Is Bathim still on earth? How did he survive the Pope's sweat? Why had he decided to go after Craig? After snapping out of my initial shock, I desperately tried calling Craig several times. I wanted to warn him that what pricked him are no roses at all. I wanted to tell him to run as fast as he can to the nearest church and get help, but my calls went straight to voicemail. I could feel the air being sucked out of my room. I could hear the sound of my heartbeat in my ears. I called my father, and luckily enough, he answered his phone. I told him of my concern and asked him to check on Craig. My father assured me that he will get right to it. I told him to take as many crucifixes as he can and ask him to update me as soon as he had spoken with Craig. He assured me he will. All I could do was wait for feedback from my father and pray for Craig. I couldn't stomach the idea of what I went through happening to someone else. In fact, it was not just someone else. This was a guy who had always sat with me during lunchtime back in high school when no one else wanted to. This was a guy who shared my pain and struggles during those awful teenage years. A guy I got bullied with and even stood up for me several times. A guy who always shared his fascinating stories and lightened me up even during my darkest days. A guy who even asked Marjorie Brown to go to the prom with me because I was too much of a coward to ask her myself. She rejected me, of course, but I appreciated Craig's help. This was a guy who made my high school life not a boring and lonely experience. This was also someone who I had just spent some quality time with a few days ago, and he told me about his job, his wife, and children. 
Even though I had been estranged from him for a while after high school, he is the one person I can say was and is my friend. I was very concerned about Craig. He was the one who initially led me away from a religious life. His parents were atheists, so was he. During one of our many lunchtime discussions back in high school, he had convinced me that there was no God. Being the fallible-minded fool I was, I quickly accepted his line of thinking. Ever since then, I had abandoned my faith. Even when I met him a few days ago, he said he still doesn't believe in God and tried to persuade me away from my faith again. But having seen and experienced what I had with roses, I was not to be moved. So I knew that Craig's chances of removing Bathim from his body before the demon fully possessed him are slim, unless if atheists have their own ways of exercising demons. I told Rebecca and Joseph about the text message I had received from Craig. Both of them were stunned. It can't be. The Pope's sweat should have done away with that bozo, Joseph said. Rebecca clenched her fists and uttered, If that demon is still here on the earth, we will have to exorcise him. The jauntice in her voice suggested that she desperately wanted to avenge her father. I agree, but I'm not drinking the Pope's sweat again, I said, recalling the bitter taste of that liquid in my mouth. I don't think we can get that anymore, Rebecca replied. My father was well-connected and liked. I think he had to pull several strings to get that jar. I am not sure the bishop will give us another jar. Okay, fine. We should gather all the demon trackers, go back to my hometown, and hope that all our weapons will be enough to kill this damn demon, I suggested. That also won't work. Most of the trackers have left the city. I heard there is another powerful demon in some desolate town up north that needs several people to take it down. By the time they get back, it may be too late for your friend, Rebecca said. It's then I remembered Patrick had said something about leaving the city for a few days. It was probably because of that. This also meant I could skip work for a while and not get into trouble. So what should we do, I asked. I think we could kill him ourselves. If he did survive from the Pope's sweat, he should be very weak. It could take a couple of weeks or months for him to regain his strength. With the weapons we have, I'm sure we can still send him back to hell. Rebecca said with the bitterness still evident in her tone. Then let's do it, Joseph yelled. So that was what we had planned, to attack Bathim while he was still weak and finish him off with our holy water-soaked rubber bullets. However, things didn't quite go according to plan. As we prepared to leave, the new pastor arrived. I don't usually like speaking badly about people, but this man was an asshole with a capital A. By his accent, I could tell that he was British, he had thinning gray hair, sky-blue eyes, a hunched back, and his saggy skin suggested that he was no spring chicken. He called all of us to the lounge for a meeting where he introduced himself as Father Moffat. He bragged about how long he has been a pastor for the church. He also vaunted about how he comes from a family of powerful pastors and influential men in the Catholic Church. Apparently, his great-grandfather was one of the first missionaries to preach the Word of God in Africa. I'm not sure that this was something Pastor Moffat was supposed to boast about because it meant his great-grandfather was involved with British colonialism in a way. But we didn't interrupt the priest to point this out. We all let him talk proudly about his family. When he was done, he then asked me and Joseph of what we do at the church. Handymen, Joseph replied. Both of you? Father Moffat asked. We hadn't really talked about what we will tell him about me, so I was just playing along with Joseph's idea. We both nodded our heads. Really? Your hands are rather soft for a handyman, the pastor said, frowning at me. Joseph laughed and replied, 
<laughs> well, my co-worker here struggles with masturbation. We're still praying for him to overcome it. Father Moffat grimaced in disgust and wiped his hands on his baggy trousers as if to show he regretted shaking hands with me. And, um, what happened to your hand? The pastor fired another question, pointing at my plastered limb. Joseph laughed and replied again, <laughs> Also masturbation. The pastor snapped at Joseph, I was not talking to you, was I? I'm sure he can speak for himself. I am his roommate, and if needs be, I can speak for him. It's a roommate code, Joseph replied. Roommate, you two stay inside the house, the pastor asked. Joseph and I exchanged quick glances and we nodded. Why is that? Joseph and I looked at each other again. As handymen, you should be residing in your own quarters. The pastor stretched his long, bony hand to point outside the window. I think that you will find that shed to be most befitting for men of your profession. I was irate to the extent that my face was turning red. Not only was this man delaying us from killing Bethim, but he was now chasing us out of the house. Rebecca and Joseph were about to protest, but I spoke up first. We could argue with that pastor about the new accommodation later, but there was something more important that we need to attend to. Excuse me, Father, you actually arrived when we were just about to head out. We have to go on leave, Joseph blurted out before I could finish. I got the impression that Father Moffat didn't know about demon tracking, and Joseph wanted to keep it this way. Leave? The both of you? The priest asked. We all nodded our heads, including Rebecca. The pastor turned to her and said she can't leave because she has to brief him about everything regarding the church. I could tell Rebecca was annoyed, but she didn't argue. As for me and Joseph, the pastor demanded that we write him a letter stating the reasons why we were going on leave at the same time. We spent most of the day moving our stuff into the shed behind the house. The shed, which was barely big enough to swing a cat, had a roof and walls made purely of wood. We only finished moving our stuff into the shed in the early hours of the night. Father Moffat had insisted that we write the letter after we moved out of the house. The man had not even offloaded his suitcase yet, but he was already pushing my every button. I delegated the task of writing the letter to Joseph while I tried to call Craig again. My call still went to voicemail. My body began to shiver when both of my parents were not picking up their phones. My stomach was rolling with anxiety as I wondered if it was a good idea to ask them to check on Craig. It only put them at risk. I pushed Joseph to finish the letter so we could be on our way. When he was done, he took the letter to the pastor. I kept trying to call my parents and Craig, but to no prevail. Joseph came back and told me that the pastor refused to approve the letter. When I read the letter he wrote, I found out why. Joseph had written that we were married to the same woman and she was not feeling well, so we were going to go visit her. I couldn't even bring myself to be angry with him because I would only be wasting more time. I settled down to write the letter myself using my not-so-good left hand, but almost immediately there was a knock on the door. Joseph went to answer it and said it was for me. When I went to the door, I realized our visitor was a police officer. He was short but well-built. He had black, Caesar-cut hair, dark brown eyes, and a round baby face, which was cleanly shaven. Stanford Black? he asked in a sharp, militant voice. I nodded. You will have to come with me, sir. Before I could speak, Joseph asked, What's this about? It has nothing to do with you, sir, the police officer answered dismissively as he gestured for me to head out of the shed. Well, he is my roommate, and I deserve to know. 
It's the roommate code, Joseph said. Am I under arrest? I asked. The officer breathed out in frustration. Look, sir, you have to come with me or I'll have to use force. He said the words as he placed his right hand on his gun holster. Okay, fine. I'll come with you. I replied, not wanting to escalate the situation. I will also come with you. Roommates stick together. Roommate code, Joseph said. The officer didn't object and led us to his cruiser. We sat in the back as the police officer drove us downtown. But he didn't take us to the police station. The officer parked in a dark alley between fast food restaurants. He opened my door and told me to climb out. He prevented Joseph from exiting and locked him inside the car. The officer gestured for me to go to the black Impala parked further down the alley. I trudged over to the car, worried sick of what was going on. As I got closer, I realized someone was standing outside the 1967 Chevrolet Impala. The man had a flat manila file in his hand and a cigar in the side of his mouth. He was wearing a white shirt with rolled up sleeves, blue suspenders, and a loosely hanging black tie. He had more hair on his arms than on his head, and his stomach was big enough to put an eight-month pregnant woman to shame. His blue eyes looked up as I approached him, and he smiled. So, this is the famous Stanford Black. I have read a lot about you, he said as he threw the file on the roof of his car and folded his arms. I'm sorry you have me at a disadvantage, I said. He chuckled. <laughs> of course. I'm Captain Steve Ledger. Father Hernandez was a dear friend of mine. May he rest in peace. That was when I realized this was Father Hernandez's police contact. I thought it best if we meet and talk face to face. I heard what you did to Candace Stone. My stomach tightened at the mention of Candace. I also know what you did at Jerry's Internet Cafe. Again, my stomach constricted. The police captain could sense my uneasiness and said, Don't worry. If I wanted to arrest you, you would have been in some hellhole by now. Trust me, I am a guy who gets it. The world is full of evil people, and people like you deal with it on your own ways to keep everyone else safe. However, I want you to know that I won't be very understanding to any more of your transgressions. By that, I mean the killings. No more people should die from your exorcisms or whatever you do to possessed folks. I'm glad to see you put a cast on your hand. It shows me you are not a killer. Well, I am happy to know that you are an understanding man because I need your help. The demon that was haunting me and killed Father Hernandez is still out there, and I think it's got my friend. We can use all the help we can get, especially police help. Sorry, son. I'm not a demon hunter or whatever you guys call yourself. I also prefer few to none police officers being mired in all this demon business, so I can't really help you there. I can, however, help you leave the city. I was shocked that he knew that Pastor Moffat was making it difficult for us to leave. He weakly smiled at me as if to say, I know everything, kid. Officer Richards will take you back to the church and you should be able to leave the city with no problem. Here's my number. Give me a call sometime and remember, no more human casualties, the captain said as he handed me a business card with his contact details. I thanked him and walked back to the cruiser. I told Joseph everything as Officer Richards drove us back to the church. When we arrived, we got no problems from the Simon Cowell-accented pastor. This made me respect Captain Ledger because whatever he did or say to the pastor, it made him tame like a wet puppy. We loaded the truck with all our possessions and left. Rebecca couldn't come with us because the pastor was adamant that she stays. 
I couldn't even properly say goodbye to her because Pastor Moffat was watching us like a hawk before we left. It was close to 3 a.m. in the morning when we hit the highway. I was as tired as I could get. Joseph was driving. I couldn't because of my hand. Frustrated that my calls to both Craig and my parents were going to voicemail, I decided to sleep for a while. Before I slept, I prayed to God for help at our mission. We had fewer weapons than last time we journeyed to fight the demon, and our plan wasn't all that solid. In fact, we didn't even have a proper plan. I just prayed that Jesus would lead the way. When I woke up, the sun had risen. I realized that someone was resting their head on my shoulder. I looked over at the driver's seat, and it wasn't Joseph driving. In fact, Joseph was seated in between me and the driver. He was using my shoulder as a pillow, and as always, he was snoring loud enough to shake the earth. The man behind the wheel had long, straight black hair. His cheeks were covered by a well-trimmed beard, and he was wearing a long white shirt that looked like a gown on his slendered body. Jesus, I muttered. The man smiled at me and exclaimed, Oh, hi, dude. You're awake. My name is Nathan, but you can call me Nat. His raspy voice reminded me of Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. His brown eyes had a shade of red, which led me to think this guy was probably high as a kite. I quickly sat up and shook off my grogginess. I prodded Joseph to wake up. Who the hell is this? I asked him. That's Nat, he replied as if it was the most obvious thing in the world. You let a stranger drive the car? He's not a stranger. He is Nat. I just told you that. Besides, I was tired and I already checked. He's not crazy or possessed. It's true, dude. I'm not crazy, but I'm actually totally possessed. With music. I'm a great DJ. If you ever need me to play at your parties, I'm game. Free of charge, my dude, Nat said. You see, he is cool, Joseph said. I wanted to shout my head off at the both of them, but the truck began to sputter. White smoke emanated from the bonnet, and eventually the car came to a stop. Joseph and Nat checked on the problem while I tried to call Craig and my parents. I still had no luck. Joseph told me that the truck won't be going anywhere anytime soon. Apparently, the crush we had with the oak tree in my parents' neighborhood had caused some damage that was overlooked when the truck was repaired. Joseph put his hand on my shoulder and said, I know you're thinking of giving up. I wasn't. But don't lose hope. I hadn't. We will find a way. Heroes like us always do. Um, okay. Your zipper is open, man, I said to him. He looked down and replied, I know, it's broken. So why are you wearing those pants? Because they are my lucky pants. I deeply exhaled out of frustration, worry, and weariness. I hadn't been paying attention to Nat, but the next time I looked over at him, he had waved down a big old yellow school bus. Joseph leaned into me and said it's because of his lucky pants that the bus stopped for us. I ignored him and quickly carried our luggage to the bus. When we got inside, we realized the bus was full of nuns. All of them were old enough to have attended high school with Jesus himself. They were also very sweet women because they agreed to give us a ride to our exact destination. We sat in the vacant three leather seats in the front. It then came to my attention that all the nuns on the bus were drinking tea from white demitasses. The head nun offered us some tea, which Joseph and Nat took without hesitation. I had initially refused, but the nuns repeatedly persuaded me until I relented. After just three sips of the sweet tea, my vision became bleary. Less than ten seconds later, I passed out. When I woke up, the sun was setting. 
The bus was shaking to suggest that we were moving on a rough road and my hands were tied behind my back. I looked outside and saw we were off the highway. The bus was riding down a dirt road of a wooden area filled with an assortment of tall, fruitless trees. I noticed Joseph and Nat were still passed out. They were also tied up like me. I couldn't see where our bags and weapons were. When I stared at the head nun seated to our right, a chill swept through my soul. Her eyes were blinding black. Her face was crunched into a wrinkled frown like she had been constipated for the past week. I turned my head around and realized that all the nuns on the bus now had black eyes and hideous ridged faces. Joseph and Nat woke up at the same time. They went through the same shock realization of our situation. What's going on? Nat hysterically asked. The nuns began laughing. You are all about to die, the head nun said with a nefarious robotic voice I had come to realize all possessed people use. The rest of the nuns chuckled like a group of witches, and it made my body quaver. Oh my God, dudes, Nat said. I think they are demons. Don't worry. I read somewhere that if we can guess her names, we will have power over them. Gary, Peter, Jack, Philip, Rachel, Juliet. Please stop, I begged him. Sarah, Carol, David, Leonard, Larry, Tom, Tommy, Tomston. Just shut up. It's not going to work, I screamed at Nat. You better untie us now. My roommate knows the Pope on a I-can-drink-your-sweat basis, and he will report you, Joseph said. The head nun slapped Joseph so hard across the face, I thought his skin would peel off. You think I'm joking? Rumi, call the man. Oh, shut up, Joseph. We need to. I trailed off when I realized the bus was slowing down. We had reached a derelict farmhouse built of red bricks and a gray asbestos roof. It had a spacious yard filled with empty barns, fowl runs, pigsties, and kennels. The fields next to the house were devoid of any form of vegetation and were nothing but dust. The nuns violently ushered us out of the bus and led us to a large brick well behind the house. The top of the well was covered with huge metal plates and thick rusting chains. The nuns easily removed the metal plates and chains like birthday wrappings. They were whistling and laughing so loudly that I could barely hear what Joseph was screaming at them. It was already nightfall, but I can tell inside the well was much darker. The nuns cut Nat loose and he screamed as he was thrown into the black abyss of the well. Joseph was also cut loose and hurled in next. Before I was tossed in, the nun shouted, Dinner is served! I was freed from my restraints and aggressively chucked into the well. The fall was long. For several seconds I wailed as I sank into the blackness. I eventually landed with a loud and agonizing thump at the bottom of the well. Despite the pain aching through my whole body, I was thankful the well was dry. My mind was still in a haze but it didn't stop me from smelling it, the stench that I had become accustomed to, the stench of a rotten egg, the stench that always caused a knot to form in my throat, the stench that had meant something every time I smelt it, the stench of danger, the stench of evil. Why the Hell Was Craig Pricked? Part 1 by Sunfred Well, folks, that's our story tonight. Rothrick and I hope you enjoyed it. We sure had a great time bringing it to you, and we really appreciate you listening. Tune in next week when we bring you another chilling tale from the dark chamber. 
And just a note, if you're an aspiring author and you want your story read here on Tales from the Dark Chamber, send us a note at talesfromthedarkchamber at gmail.com. If it creeps old Rothrick out enough, we'll air it. And if you want your story recorded for your own use or just want to have it, check out my Fiverr gig at www.fiverr.com forward slash Woody underscore G. Look for the creepy pasta gig. You can order there. And again, thank you for listening tonight.